Judge Shinlin's decision does nothing to take away the authority to lawfully conduct stops and frisks. Judge Shinlin does appear to assume that the stop ratio police activity should mirror population data. And that is a recipe for stripping inner city neighborhoods of the police protection that they need. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrosi uh, coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is not able to be with us today. I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. Craig, of course, uh, writes the blog. May it please the court. Before we get started with today's program, let me just take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio, the cloud-based practice management platform for lawyers. You can find out a lot more about Clio at goclio.com. On today's show, we're going to talk about the recent ruling out of New York in Floyd versus the city of New York. This is the case that involves New York, the New York Police Department's stop and frisk policy. U.S. District Judge Shira Shinlin issued an extensive set of rulings uh, on liability and, and remedy in this case, essentially ordering that the New York policy as it as it's being implemented is unconstitutional and issuing some orders for how the police department should go about remedying that and how the uh, compliance with the order will be will be monitored the uh, decision has stirred a lot of controversy new york mayor michael bloomberg has called this a dangerous decision which will hurt the city's crime rate while uh, planning his appeal he has uh, said that uh, Judge Shidlin knows, quote, absolutely zero about policing. We're going to talk a lot more about this case and and what it might mean, uh, not just for New York, but for other cities such as uh, Los Angeles or New Orleans that have that have similar policies. To help us do that, we have two guests with us today who have a lot of knowledge about this matter. First of all, I'd like to welcome to the program Heather McDonald of the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. Heather is uh, a lawyer by training, is a contributing editor to the City Journal, where she covers a number of topics, including immigration, policing, and racial profiling, homelessness, and homeless advocacy in the New York courts. She has authored several books, including the book, Are Cops Racist? Exploring the Inner Workings of the New York City Police Force and the Controversy Over Racial Profiling. She was awarded the 2008 Integrity and in Journalism Award from the New York State Shields. Welcome to the show, Heather McDonald. Thank you for having me on, Bob. Next to join us today is Sunita Patel, a lawyer with the Center for Constitutional Rights. Sunita litigates racial profiling, immigrant justice, and other human rights issues. Among her extensive experience in human rights and immigration cases, she was involved in the Floyd versus City of New York case. The Center for Constitutional Rights filed the case in 2008 on behalf of uh, a group of uh, four men of color who believe they were unfairly searched under the stop and frisk law. Uh, Sunita is a member of the 
board of directors for Families for Freedom, the U.S. Human Rights Network, and the National Immigration Project of the National Lawyers Guild. Sunita Patel, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Sunita, since you were involved in this case, I, I want to start with you. And as I said, this is a complex uh, set of opinions. Uh, Judge Shinlin actually issued two different opinions, one uh, addressing, I guess, liability, uh, if you want to say that, or, or constitutionality of the uh, New York Police Department practices, and the other in which she addresses uh, the steps that the New York Police Department needs to take in order to bring their practices into compliance. Uh, I mean, significantly, uh, Judge Shinlin is not ruling here that, that stop and frisk in and of itself is unconstitutional. But as I understand it, she's saying that, that the way it, the policy has been implemented by the New York Police Department is, is what makes it unconstitutional here. Can, can you elaborate on, on exactly what it is that she concluded here? That's absolutely right. In 1968, the Supreme Court decided in Terry versus Ohio that police departments around the country and police officers have the authority to stop and frisk someone where there is individualized reasonable suspicion. Judge Shinlin's decision does nothing to take away the authority to lawfully conduct stops and frisks. However, she said she, um, after nine weeks of listening to testimony from primarily police police officials, including and and in addition statistical experts, she concluded that the New York Police Department, in its implementation of stop and frisk tactics in New York City are conducting them without consideration for reasonable, individualized reasonable suspicion, and instead, in many instances, replacing race as um, the factor that's leading to stops. And I think what is important to point out is that she is very clear that a safer New York is an important thing. She mentions that there have been historic cuts in crime but she also acknowledges that um, this practice in particular violates the Constitution. And we're looking here at whether or not there's a Fourth Amendment violation and, in addition, a Fourteenth Amendment violation. And she found that there are both. That doesn't mean that police officers can't engage in stop and frisk, frisks, and it doesn't mean that, um, that they don't continue to. But um, it's, it's important to understand that what she has found is that there are practices that are unlawful that are happening in New York City. Well, and, and the numbers are, are somewhat staggering in reading this opinion, at least, at least to me, uh, somebody who's not, you know, I guess a layman when it comes to, to uh, this particular issue. Her opinion finds that uh, between 2004 and 2012, the police department conducted over 4.4 million Terry stops. And, and, and she even says at one point in her opinion that that that's probably a, a conservative, or, or at least a, not the full number, because not all of these would have been reported. And that, That's right. And that a, a good percentage of those were focused on, on blacks and Hispanics. In fact, she says that uh, 23% of the stops were of blacks, 24 uh, no, that's not, I'm reading the wrong statistic here. This is the ones using force. But a significant percentage of these were, were of, of blacks and Hispanics, and, and uh, only a minority of them were of whites. What, what's what's the, uh, the significance of that, Sadia? That's right. Nearly, nearly 90% of them were, uh, I'm sorry, nearly, oh, over 80% are of blacks and Hispanics. And 
Um, this is a remarkable, it's important to remember this is NYPD data. This is not data that the plaintiffs came up with. This, was, this is their own statistical evidence. And, you know, our expert showed at trial um, that when you control for all other factors, the number of officers in a neighborhood, even whether or not the level of crime, so whether it's a high crime area or a low crime area, race is the predominant predictive factor about whether someone is going to get stopped or not. Heather McDonald, let's bring you into this discussion. I mean, you've written critically of this, of this opinion, suggesting that Judge Chenlin's analysis of, of statistics, I guess here, if you want to put it that way, doesn't take into account the reality of, of crime in New York City. What's your position on that? Well, Judge Shinlin does appear to assume that the stop ratio police activity should mirror population data. And that is a recipe for stripping inner city neighborhoods of the police protection that they need. The number of stops, I would say, is commensurate with the amount of policing and the size of the New York population. There's New York officers make 22 million civilian contacts a year, 400,000 arrests under a strict probable cause standard, and they're making about 600,000 reasonable suspicion stops. So I would argue that that's within a reasonable range when you want your officers out there in the streets actually working for their job. With a force, police force of 35,000, uh, it takes an officer making maybe one stop, a couple stops a month to get up to the numbers that we're seeing. But the, the real heart of this case is not the absolute numbers, but the racial ratios. And ultimately, what this case stands for is using a population benchmark for doing the massive industrial scale statistical analysis of you have a massive number of stops and, and try to figure out what's going on. Shinlin has said that she thinks that the stop should mirror population rates. The, the more relevant comparison for understanding why uh, stop ratios look the way they do is the criminal uh, suspect data. And blacks are 23% of the city's population. It's true they make up about 53%, 53-55% of all stops to you know, some of the advocates, that looks like prima facie evidence of, of profiling. But I would submit that the more relevant data is that they commit, blacks commit 80% of all shootings in the city, 70% of all robberies, and 66% of all violent crime. Does that mean that the police should racially profile or are racially profiling, that, that they're going out there wholesale and, and stopping every black person they see? No but it does mean that they are going to be drawn into high-crime neighborhoods. Uh, Ray Kelly, the police commissioner, has a program that puts officers, rookie officers, to walk footposts and make proactive stops in the highest-crime zones of the city. The statistical model that the plaintiffs used did not take this program into account, and it also cannot possibly account for community requests for policing, which I hear every time I go into a inner city police community meeting, you hear the elderly saying, I want the pot smoking trespassers out of my lobby and off the corner. 
and and that's what the police are hearing. And when they respond to those heartfelt requests for public order, they can't help but generate racially disparate data that is going to be used against them in the next racial profiling lawsuit because those requests come predominantly from poor neighborhoods where there's open-air drug markets and when you don't have private landlords or, or uh, rather doormen to police buildings. Well, I would just, I, I want to point out a few things. First of all, there was a Quinnipiac poll in May 2013 that uh, indicates that black and Latino, majority of black and Latinos are, in, are against stop and frisk. So the idea that because um, black and Latino communities want to be safe and uh, have crime reduced does not excuse the police from following the Constitution. And that's really, really important here. No one is saying that we don't want a, we don't want a safe New York City. We're saying that the police have to follow the Constitution, and that's very clear. Also, I think this, you know, the judge considered the city's argument, statistical argument, that she should consider um, violent crime rates during the trial. There were numerous days of testimony from the city's experts and the plaintiff's experts on this. And, you know, she, she concludes that it's not a good comparison because the major- 90% of people who are stopped and frisked are not ticketed, summonsed, or nor is there any other further law enforcement activity. So the population of people that you're stopping are innocent people, not people who are committing crimes. So it's a false benchmark. It's not an appropriate benchmark. And uh, instead, what she finds is that by using this comparison, you're actually doing exactly what the constitutional doesn't permit, which is using race as, it, it, it provides further evidence that race is the factor that is leading to uh, stop the numbers of stops and frisks, not anything that is racially neutral. And, you know, for, for your audience that is predominantly lawyers, they will understand that that is a problem for the, for the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Well, I agree, of, of course, with Sunita that uh, there is simply no excuse for the police not following the Constitution. The issue is, have, have the plaintiffs made their case that, I mean, this is a very strong uh, burden of proof to get an injunction that the police department has been deliberately indifferent, if not willfully involved in racial profiling. And that is simply a ludicrous charge against one of the most professional departments in the country. But I would take issue with the conclusion that is often drawn from the outcomes of stops. I, I wish that Judge Scheinlin, it is, it is absolutely true about 12% of stops result in an arrest or summons. It's a, basically an identical ratio for blacks and whites, showing that the judge is using the same degree of reasonable suspicion. But it, is not, it does not follow that either the uh, other people who were not arrested or summoned, that that was not a constitutional stop. You can have reasonable suspicion to make a stop uh, that proves to not have grounds for any further action. But, so somebody could be innocent and, and lawfully stopped, but it also doesn't follow that just because somebody was not arrested or summoned, that that stop was not targeted at actual criminal activity. And the judge addressed this exact issue. She said that there could be 
people who are stopped um, where, but there is no further law enforcement activity. But for that to happen 88% of the time, it means it, it sort of undermines the city's argument. If it was happening 1% or 2% of the time, you know, she didn't give a figure, but, you know, perhaps we could, we could say that that would be tr- the case. But 88% of the time is a, is, a, is a really large number for that to happen. And I think in terms of the burden, um, you know, what we've been, what the judge was considering there is a 14-year history. It, it even predates that. But what she looked at starting from the 1999 Attorney General's report that indicated this large, vast racial disparity in stops and frisks. And from there, the police department, starting from that point, turned a blind eye on a very serious problem. In fact, they engaged in, they asked the Rand Corporation to commit it to, to engage in a study. That study also showed that there was racial disparities provided for certain recommendations around how to prevent unconstitutional policing, and the city ignored many of those, if not all of the recommendations. Um, and since then, you've got just, you know, just uh, mountains of evidence. You have very high-level officials saying, we don't really, we, we're not concerned that there are complaints about racial profiling or that community members come forward at community meetings and, and community board meetings about, with complaints of stop and frisk. You have uh, Commissioner Kelly saying that the focus of stop and frisk is, on, is black and Latino communities in order to instill fear in young people in those communities. That was unrebutted evidence. Um, it wasn't just about the statistics. It was also about the police officers themselves and the way the supervisors were supervising them on up the chain of command, not to mention um, really, really strong evidence in the form of recordings that showed that up the chain of command, there's a emphasis. Sunita, I just need to take a short break right here. I'm going to, you can hold that thought. We're going to return to the conversation, but uh, we will be back to the program in about 60 seconds. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, pr- a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're talking to Heather McDonald of the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research and Sadita Patel of the Center for Constitutional Rights about the uh, recent ruling that uh, New York's stop and frisk policy was unconstitutional. And sorry that I, that I cut you off. And Heather, yeah, let me uh, give you an opportunity to respond to that, what we were talking about just before the break, if you'd like to do that. Thank you, Bob. I just want to clear up some misconceptions here. Yes, the NYPD did ask Rand to do a study of whether it was racially profiling on its own. 
uh, in order to determine whether these allegations were true. Contrary to what Sunita claims, Rand found that there was no evidence that the police were engaged in race-based stops. There were minute differences in some outcomes that Rand said needed to be further studied, but the NYPD implemented four of the five recommendations. The allegation that Kelly ever said that it was the purpose of stops to instill fear in uh, minority communities was based on one claim long after the fact of a former NYPD officer who run a group of, of disgruntled black officers who made a claim that was so preposterous on its face that Kelly would make this statement in a meeting with black legislators in order to persuade them to veto a bill uh, regarding the stop question and frisk database. Nobody ever corroborated that statement. So again, the NYPD has not been ignoring evidence because the evidence has not been clear. But what I would like to ask Sunita is if a a 12% stop and uh, rather a 12% arrest and summons rate is too low, what should it be under a reasonable suspicion standard? Philadelphia has a consent decree now uh, regarding stop question frisks. They have an even lower ratio that has been approved by their monitor. We've never heard from the advocates what a proper rate should be. And I'd also like to know what she thinks the rate, proper racial rate should be. If, if blacks commit 80% of all shootings, but they're 23% of the population, what percentage of stops should we see in, in black communities? It is now 53%. Uh, what would it be more appropriate if the stop rate is 23% of blacks and 35% of whites, which is what the population ratio is? Let me, let me just uh, interrupt you there and, and suggest that perhaps we can expand that question to the, the implications of this ruling. You know, the, the judge issued an extensive remedial order here, but there are, you know, as, we, as I said at the outset, the stop and frisk policy has not been shut down. It will continue. Other cities have stop and frisk policies. So what is the what does this case tell us, uh, if anything, about how to constitutionally uh, implement a stop and frisk policy and whether that's a matter of, of some of the statistical uh, or proportional elements that Heather is asking about or, or something else? So, Sunita, what's, how, do we, how do we do this constitutionally? Well, I think, I think that here, you know, some of, some of the things that the remedy experts for the city and the plaintiffs uh, both agreed on, I mean, I think we could start from there, one is that there isn't, that the type of supervision that's happening on the street level doesn't allow supervisors and the documentation of the stops and first doesn't allow the supervisors to actually determine whether or not there is, whether or not a stop was engaged in a constitutional manner. That's a real problem. Um, You know, and so one of the things that the judge ordered the city to work on with the monitor is, is is some changes to the way that the form is, uh, the, the way that the form is made and the way that the documentation is, is conducted. And that's really important because if you don't have the proper documentation, if the first level supervisor is not able to determine whether a stop and frisk is constitutional, then on up, you don't have any checks and balances. Um, and that's, that's, I think, one of the, the hearts, uh, the, one of the heart, uh, it's at the heart of the issue here. Then you, then you get to training. You have problems with training materials where the legal standard that officers are being trained on is inaccurate and incorrect. 
the judge laid out, um, uh, you know, exactly what the standard is, which is very clear and has been a part, Supreme Court precedent for decades now, and has asked them to modify their training materials in, accordingly. Um, and then we have a real problem with the lack of accountability. We have officers, we have a system where the NYPD internally um, changes the decisions when the, center, the Civilian Complaint Review Board sustains an, um, a complaint of racial profiling or, some, or, or for stop and frisk abuse, they will change it if it's a he said, she said situation. And, you know, this is, this is just kind of, a, kind of a very serious issue when it comes to accountability for constitutional violations. You know, if an officer knows that they can get away with, a pro, with, with doing something incorrectly and doing something unconstitutionally, then there's really no, nothing to prevent them from doing that. And especially when they're in the streets, in these communities, um, making split-second decisions, and that's really important. The other thing that she says, not in the remedies opinion, but in her liability decision, is that you know, one, of the, one of the things we need to address is implicit racial bias. You know, when you're making split-second decisions, there is a, institutionally, there is a racial bias that could be playing a role in the kinds of decisions that officers are, are making. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I think one of the things that's really amazing about what the judge did is she's given the New York Police Department in the city of New York an opportunity to work with the community and work with stakeholders to build back trust and public confidence in the stop and frisk practices. Um, and I, I, you know, I call on the city to take advantage of that and be part of the solution and stop being part of the problem. We're getting very low on time. We're not quite at the end of the show yet, but Heather, I don't know if you quickly want to respond to some of the points Anita just made. Well, I think uh, the remedy is going to be extremely costly, and, and it, everybody is for training, and I think that the real key here is to train officers constantly to be courteous to the people that they're stopping and explain uh, what the basis for the stop was. I, I think that that would do a, a go far to try and resolve some of the tension around this policy. Um, but th- the judge has ordered enormously additional paperwork. The form that the officers now fill out was agreed upon by the Center for Constitutional Rights in order to uh, try and document what was going on. Now their officers are going to be asked to uh, write in, in duplicate what they're doing. Um, I'm not against transparency, I think that's a good thing. But really, what you signaled, I think, at the beginning of this segment, Bob, is that ultimately, what really comes down to is is the statistical definition of what constitutes racial profiling. And that is where this case has such major implications for policing across the country, because the judge has signed on to a, a benchmark and a statistical method that guarantees that any police department that is targeting its resources to where people are asking for protection, where, where gangbangers are engaged in shootings, where young kids are being killed, and where the police are therefore responding with high-intensity hotspot policing, generating stop activity in those neighborhoods, that that is going to constitute prima facie evidence of racial profiling. And, and there's not a police department in the country that is not vulnerable to these types of suits now uh, if this decision stands. 
That's absolutely not true. Police uh, officials from across the country agree that following the constitutional Constitution is not inconsistent with being effective in fighting crime. In fact, former police chief um, William Bratton, uh, Com- Commissioner William Bratton, has said so um, on national news after the decision. Um, I think it's important also to mention that the city and is doing what Heather is doing here, which is fear-mongering and making people feel that following the Constitution will cause, you know, an upsurge in, in crime rates. And that's just simply not true. And I think it's really, it's really important that we keep some perspective on it's not just about being courteous and respectful. It's about following the Constitution. And the judge did not only take statistics as her evidence. She, she listened to weeks and weeks of testimony from police officers and high-level officials, and she cited it for over 40 or 50 pages uh, testimony related to the willfully disregard for a problem here, um, something that's dated back over a decade. And I think all of that goes, went into consideration. This is not something that police departments around the country should be, you know, as Heather suggests, fearful of. I think most police officials agree that following the Constitution is important and something that um, bring, builds trust and confidence with the communities that they serve. Well, I hope our listeners will read these decisions for themselves and, and come to their uh, own conclusions about Judge Heinlein's rulings. We are just about out of time. I want to give each of you uh, time for a quick wrap-up, 30 seconds at most, and, and then uh, if you could let our listeners know uh, also how they might follow up with you or learn more about the work that you're doing in these areas. Heather McDonald, let's uh, start with you. Well, again, Sunita and I are in perfect agreement. Following the Constitution is the prerequisite for sound policing. The issue is, did the plaintiffs make their case that the uh, NYPD was deliberately indifferent to its constitutional obligations, and I would say they failed completely. The decision is cobbled together with bits and pieces of, of evidence, and it is going to come down to how people interpret police activity against what benchmark, and I still have yet to hear uh, Sunita tell me what she thinks the proper ratio of stops to population data should be that would give us uh, confidence that the police were not, in her view, violating the population, the uh, Constitution. But yes, we do agree public safety is necessary, although the, the judge uh, refused to take any evidence of the efficacy of the Stop, Question, and Frisk program, even as she said that she didn't believe it was uh, effective in stopping crime based on her the low, uh, allegedly low stop and, and uh, arrest, the arrest and summons rate. So I, I think this is not a good day for public safety, and um, it's going to be tough for departments to follow the mandates here and police where people most need help. Thanks a lot. And Heather, Heather, let me just, uh, I was just going to say, Heather, I, I know that readers can find out more about you at uh, the Manhattan Institute website, which is uh, manhattan Institute. Org, and your uh, bio there has a number of your uh, links to a number of your, your articles and, and op-eds uh, that you've written on, on this and related topics. Any other uh, contact information or follow-up information you want to provide to our listeners? Um, no, that it's uh, manhattan-institute.org or city-journal.org. That's fine. Thank you, Bob.
Thank you very much. And Sunita, sorry to cut you off there. That's okay. Thank you very much. Unconstitutional stops of innocent people don't do anything to stop or prevent crime. Um, it creates a schism in the community and prevents Black and Latinos from wanting to cooperate with the police, which is harmful to public safety. And I just want to reiterate that the city and the police department have a, have a really an opportunity in this remedy order to engage with experts um, and the court monitor, the plaintiffs, and the community members to make the, safe, the city safer and build back public confidence and stop and frisk. And I really hope that they move forward with that process and work with us towards reform instead of stonewalling and continuing to ignore the facts. And how can our readers find more about the work you're doing and follow up with you if they want to do that? Our website is ccrjustice.org, and you can also follow me on Twitter at Sunita Patel uh, CCR. And I, and I would note, I note that the uh, the Center for Constitutional Rights website does have a, a section devoted to this case, which uh, includes the full text of both of uh, Judge Shenlin's decisions. If if you're not able to to find them elsewhere, you can find them there. Uh, well, thanks uh, very much to Heather McDonald of the Manhattan Institute and Sunita Patel of the Center for Constitutional Rights for taking the time to share their thoughts and insights on this case. Really appreciate it. Thanks to both of you. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for having me. And I, if I could just address um, Ms. McDonald's question about the appropriate number, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to ignore that. I would just say that it's it, that there is no uh, a hard number. It, it the NYPD should be following the Constitution in every stop. I agree. They should be, and, and I I think that they have been. Well, no. Well, <laughs> federal of, judge disagrees. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I maybe I should stop you, and I agree. And, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll end you. it there. Uh, <laughs> thank you very thank much. You. We, we really are out of time and really appreciate both of you being with us. That concludes this episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. We'll be back next time with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.